Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. If you like what you hear, then we highly recommend that you rate and review our show on iTunes. This helps us to bring our discussions on diversity and cinema to a much wider audience. Also, if you want to support our show, you can do so two ways. The first is by contributing to Andrew's Patreon page over at his website, can'tstopthemovies.com. For as little as $1 a month, I believe, Andrew? Yep, just a dollar a month, and that gets you access to the Can't Stop the podcast because can't stop is our motif but you get to can't stop the podcast we've done some video games so far we've done the latest season of twin peaks and i've been going through an episode to episode analysis of 13 reasons why so there's already a good bit of exclusive content out there and it helps keep both me and my wife fed and our cats fed as well always a, a great cause especially when family and animals are involved and the second way you can support our show is by donating to the Modern Superior Patreon page because they're the network that hosts our show. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm feeling a little silly. I got into a Twitter debate as to whether Doomsday and Batman v Superman had horns or not. So I've been very productive with my last hour or so. Spoiler alert, Doomsday does not have horns. Thank you kindly. Other than that, haven't really been able to watch anything great recently. The latest Fast and Furious movie was a disappointment, and I also watched Gerald's Game, the new Netflix movie, a couple of nights ago, and it was one of those movies where I initially was kind of eh to it and then time passed a bit and I was slowly becoming not so fond of it and then when I sat down to actually write about it I realized I hated it oh it's one of those situations yeah so uh, both of those reviews are up at can't stop the movies so really just trying to stay productive and a little less cloud hazy and a little less get into arguments on twitter over stupid stuff so (laughs) that's me right now how about you both the same, trying to, especially the social media arguments have been, been very tempted to jump in on a few of those this past week, just because there's been a lot going on in the world. And I've been very good about just turning the other cheek and not taking the bait. So I'm actually feeling good about that. And film wise, I haven't really watched that much. I've been doing a little prep for the Real World Film Festival because we're going to be talking to the director of that on the Frameline Radio Show this week. And I think the only other film I've, I've seen in theaters recently was like Mother. And that was the last thing that, that I saw. So I'm looking forward to, obviously, the new Blade Runner, which will be dropping soon and Ooh, hopefully getting right. back to the cinema a little a little bit sooner. Yeah, we may have to revisit our uh, Villeneuve session that got us started here. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure we can even find a way just to squeeze it into the show if we have to. Yeah, either way, because uh, both me and my wife are really looking forward to that. And after seeing what Villeneuve did with sci-fi and Arrival and just how we're ridiculous the cinematography looks for this 2049 variation we should be in good hands yeah and up here in, in toronto um tiff has been running a villainy retrospective so they've been showing all his films on the big screen i think they even showed cosmos as well but they've been showing a lot of that obviously they didn't contact andrew or myself to <laughs> provide i guess they didn't hear our whole discussion of his canon but you know that's okay we we forgive them and there'll be other opportunities to work with them with you being the uh, festival mover and shaker that you'll have to start dropping subtle hints or maybe create custom mixtapes that just plays invite them for guest speaking invite them for guest speaking that is true i just need to work on my moving and shaking <laughs> standing awkward at a festival party is not really much of a mover or shaker, but you know, it's a step, I guess. It's a step. 
let's jump into the, the meat of our show. We like to normally start off each episode by highlighting two short films that have caught our attention and sometimes relate to the theme. So, Andrew, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have a visual curiosity. Gonna be 100% honest up front. I don't think that it's overall a very impactful short, but I was really impressed by how it was shot and also the implications that it has for cinema moving forward. But my short was called At the End of the Cul-de-Sac, which was written and directed by Paul Trillo. It is done all entirely in one take, which I realize that for a lot of cineasts, there's some debate as to whether it's just some kind of, for lack of a better term, dick measuring contest to see who can make the longer take or not, or whether there is like a, a good stylistic argument to be made for the long take in whichever movie that they actually appear in. I've seen people go so far as to argue that the long takes in Children of Men were excessive, and that is beyond insane to me. But here, I thought that it was a very interesting way to incorporate how this new technology has made it so that surveillance, and not only, you know, cinematic recording, but surveillance is like a constant ongoing thing. Watching these people as they're kind of weaving in and around this crazy guy who shows up in their neighborhood, banging at someone's door, talking incoherently about accounts and so on, it reminded me a lot of how we don't don't really engage in our technology overall in kind of like a very civic or justice-minded sense. People pull out their cell phones, but it's more just to kind of like, hey, take a look at this weirdo. Especially, <laughs> which kind of understandable when he starts pissing himself. But the way that the drone photography kept weaving in and out between them, it gave me the sense that our voyeurism, it hasn't even reached its peak as a society. When we've got all these drones that can view in on other people's neighborhoods or not, then it raises some rough questions about exactly what our privacy is and what this could have been just a small town matter that was caught in the cul-de-sac, but both with the technology that's present in the short recording what happens and the technology that's being used outside the short to actually film everything that's going on, it makes me a little uncomfortable to be honest, and I, I don't necessarily think that the subject of the short gets to that level of discomfort because there's some vague rumblings about procedure or if they've marked up a violation or something, and it ends in a stoning that, to be honest, does feel like it comes out of nowhere. But on the technical aspects and some of the narrative thrusts, I thought it was a very good way to kind of talk about both how we make movies and how technology has basically changed the way that we consume entertainment. So, yeah, that's some of my reasoning. I'll take a slight issue with one of the points you made in terms of saying that you didn't find it impactful because I know I watched this film twice and both times that I've watched it I've loved it a little more um, wow. I think I think it does 
have a lot to say. I don't know if necessarily gets everything across, but it's one that I have been thinking about for a couple hours since you brought my attention to this film. And part of it is just because of the technical prowess of how it's made and the fact that the camera is constantly moving. And I love the way that it weaves in and out so that we're getting snippets of conversations and we have to put things together. And as crucial information is coming, especially as you to reference about um, violations and whatnot, when you're, you think you're about to get a big dose of that, the camera quickly zooms away to either back to the individual causing this ruck, the ruckus or children observing. And I, th- I thought that was a kind of interesting approach to it. And I understand completely what you were saying about the use of technology within it, because watching this film made me think a lot about social media and the hive mind. Because I feel like within this community, it feels very much like a hive where something happens, everyone's watching and they're not really watching to see what the issue is about or what the problem is. They're just waiting to see when the violation happens or when something ridiculous is going to occur so that, as you said, they can pull up the camera and observe. And it's funny to see which of the members of the community get offended by what acts. Like they, they have no problem with him slamming his car onto the property and basically telling all the horrible things that he's done at work and what who or what he may or may not have hit on the way home. But when he when he urinates on himself, that's when one woman's like, OK, I've had enough. This is too much. It's like, really? That's what that's what triggered you? Like, you know, so I, I know I just found it really well done. And even the way how towards the end, I agree the stoning does at least the first time the stoning felt a little out of place. Upon second viewing of it, I, I was—I guess I was more warm to it, especially when they have the shot of the kid with the, with the slingshot, and he's the one that fires the first stone because the children are pushed aside, told to like go in the houses, but they're all observing just like the parents. And I've been thinking about this one a lot, so at least for me, it was a little more impactful than I think you give it credit for. Yeah, which is, uh, I guess, listener, really funny. We we started with me here because uh, this was the short I picked. I think this is the first time that I was picking something more as a curiosity, and uh, <laughs> the recipient ended up liking it more than myself. But I like where you're going with this, uh, particularly w- with what you mentioned about the kid being first one to throw the stone, because there is a lot of discussion online, and I'm actually doing a uh, podcast uh, retrospective on the video game series Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross next month. Um, and we've had discussions, uh, me and this guy named Jed Presgrove, great video game critic, by the way, as to what level of calling someone out on their sins on social media is actually effective. I'm of the blame someone all day, every day, hound them using everything that we have because the military isn't on our side. The government is barely on our side. We need to be able to have some degree of power. But here it takes like a very literal form when the sticks and stones of what's basically just embarrassing behavior, at least at first. The the guy that never really does anything that's very threatening unless you consider the additional fertilizer he provides to be some kind of toxic influence on the neighborhood or something. But he didn't do anything that an embarrassed drunk wouldn't do. The response that he receives at the end, I think that part of the reason that it felt out of place is it kind of felt like those old witch trial or, um, can't remember the name of the play, but everyone gets together and they have to decide who to sacrifice or some kind of wicker man scenario. And it mm-hmm. does, it still feels like it just kind of comes out of nowhere. At the same time, if we're looking at this, how we 
take in social media, how we use this technology to document our lives and to communicate certain aspects about situations to one or the other, then the sudden appearance of violence that does fit in really well. It's like the sudden pillaring of someone in the community. So, yeah, here I was uh, just thinking that we were going to have a technical chat, and you've warmed me up a bit more to my own pick. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, maybe it could just be that I've been really analyzing social media a lot in the last few days and how various sides are responding to certain incidents in the world and what's really getting across Maybe that's I was bringing that into this film, but even the sense of community and the fact that even as like a homeowner, there's certain rules that you have to obey. For example, during TIFF, I didn't get a chance to mow my lawn and I felt like I was that guy whenever I came home and people were looking at me like, you know, dude, why don't you have your – why are there weeds growing? And you kind of feel that pressure of like the eyes on you. And obviously, you know, they didn't turn around and stone me or anything, but it's just that weird way that we have in society where we've kind of allowed ourselves to follow certain unspoken rules, how quickly people are willing to turn on on others for breaking those rules or what they deem as a violation. And then you start getting into the question of like, well, if this guy violated whatever laws of this neighborhood, then who are the people that set the laws, you know? And yeah. the ending felt very Henning's Tale of sorts as well. So it was an interesting short. I agree that maybe they could have explained a few things a little more, maybe even played up the whole sinister tone a bit earlier to make the ending flow a bit better. But it was really taken by the technical prowess and then how well I thought it weaved in with the narrative yeah and and two quick points i want to make before we move on to your short first of all like the the homeowner aspect part of the reason that i'm not a homeowner is i worked homeowners claims for a few years and let me tell you homeowners associations are the goddamn worst it's just all of these hoity-toity rules that people come up with so that they can make sure that only the right kind of people get into their neighborhood and i hate them. And what you were saying also about the subtle pressures of just even having your home and, and having to display a specific level of pride. Otherwise, it's kind of like, you know, well, why are you in our neighborhood? Um, my only 9-11 ritual here in the States is revisiting David Foster Wallace's essay, The View from Mrs. Thompson's. And he has a great passage in there where his neighbor is putting up a flag and he's wondering in uh, David Foster Wallace as um, as this is a uh, nonfiction essay, is talking to the neighbor and is wondering, you know, where did all these flags come from? Like, who made them? Who manufactured them? And when he asks his neighbor this, he says that the neighbor gives him a look normally reserved for the state of my lawn. And it is funny how people get personally offended, both at what props you decide to display and of the state of your lawn. So these people obviously have very violent regulations regarding lawn maintenance. So a word of admission before we get to your short, my eardrums are killing me. <laughs> I listened, <laughs> uh, listened to it actually isn't too far from the truth. I, I watched it right before we uh, started this call and I'm still kind of reeling from it both in good ways and bad ways but why don't you tell us a bit about your short and I will try not to let any of my weird hearing issues that I suddenly have disrupt that 
considering that there's very little dialogue in my film and it's all sounds and tone. I completely understand if it, if it caught you off guard. My short film pick of the week is a film called O Negative, and it was directed by Stephen McCarthy, who I believe is Canadian. The reason I chose this film, well, there's twofold. Uh, one, I, I'd seen this before and I was able to catch it on the big screen and I, and I really liked it because it played at the, I believe it was the 2015 Toronto After Dark Film Festival, which is a local kind of genre film festival that we have. And I think it also played TIFF that year, but I saw it at this particular festival. And our feature film that we're going to be discussing, I also saw at that same genre festival, I think it was last year. So I just thought it was a nice synergy. And plus that festival is ramping up again, I guess in a week and a half or so. So I was just kind of on that genre film festival vibe. But I really like this film. It's pure atmosphere. It's a little chilling. Dare I say a little romantic in a <laughs> kind of creepy way? But it's uh, basically this film about this guy played by the director, Stephen McCarthy, who he's driving around and he's got a woman in the back seat who looks like she's ailing. And then you quickly find out that she may not be a normal woman. She might be possibly the undead. He's taking her from, I guess, motel to motel, trying to find a way to keep her alive while being somewhat conflicted about what he has to do to keep her alive. First off, other than the obvious oral qualities, which made my fillings literally rattle when it first started playing, I loved this, and the only disappointment that I have is that about halfway through, there's this neat bit of sound design where it just feels like everything on screen is creaking in pain at once. The driver, our main character, the man who Stephen McCarthy plays, that it, it really did sound like tires when they're on compressed snow, and that's that weird fingers-on-chalkboard sensation that just goes straight inside of me and it just it gave me literal chills inside to match the snow that was occurring outside the only thing that disappointed me about this was by that point i was getting heavy let the right one in vibes oh yeah okay it wasn't as bright oddly enough one of the things that's interesting about let the right one in is how brightly lit all of these areas are like when the servant kills someone and what appears to be i mean we know it's night but it's lit so brightly it almost looks like it's a daytime killing um but something about the the harshness of the lighting when it's present combined with that groaning sensation uh of the weather on the main character i was like oh this is a lot like let the right one in and then i was disappointed because it did end up being like, let the right one in. And it's one of those things where it, it may be kind of a silly disappointment because, I mean, it's called O negative for crying out loud. That's a blood type. At the same time, this is doing such a great job just like as a tone piece, thoroughly unsettling me. One thing that a lot of people kind of touch on, but don't completely take into account when we're talking about uh, David Lynch things, is like the intensity of his sound design. And when I was unsettled watching this, it, it was Lynchian. It was just this way of making nature seem industrial and alien and foreign and then it was then it was a vampire flick 
And I know that there's enough ambiguity as to whether or not it's actually a vampire flick or not, or whatever, or if it's some kinky ritual that the two have, but even again, that goes back to vampires. But um, overall, there are, you're right, there's maybe like two or three spoken lines of dialogue. And the rest of the time, it's just the subtle reminders of nature lurking in the background that just constantly nauseated me through the sound design. So I thought it was extremely impressive in that regard. It's interesting that you went to um, let the right one in, because I didn't even think of that when watching this. Like The only one that came into my head, and I guess it was more towards the end, was a girl walks home alone at night, especially towards the end when she's asking him um, when he gets back in the car if, like, if he's okay. And you can clearly tell it's eating away at him. Like the entire Throughout the entire film, you get those moments. And I mean, I guess it manifests at one point in that dream sequence when he's walking in the snow shirtless. But you could just see the kind of conflict in his eyes. And I think McCarthy does a really good job in the performance because it's subtle, but you could still tell he's not quite right but he loves her too much to let her go. And even the way how there's, the, I guess, the two love scenes in the film, how it goes from gentle, romantic, quasi-feeding at the beginning when they're in the bathtub, and then later on when he returns and it's just blood spattered, and it's very almost animalistic in their approach. There's just a lot of interesting layers to this relationship. Even as it ended, I kind of wanted to know more, like, well, what kind of thing you go to next? At what point does it really start to get at him? You know, will he convert to the thing, or is he too afraid? Like, it was just a lot of interesting questions that popped in my head, and the sound design that you were talking about and how industrial it was, especially the nature parts now imagine seeing that on the big screen right with yeah, like, you know good sound like it really <laughs> it really just creeps you out even though you're thinking like oh this is kind of romantic but why are, why are my bones shaking <laughs> this is a little little off so it's a really well done film and even just the the color palette that he uses and you only see i guess the equivalent of brightness and daylight when he's not around her it's almost like if you got away there might be hope but whenever they're together it's always that kind of brownish hue and or it's painfully bright like how it is with the, when they're in the tub together it's like this this dirty painful brightness yeah that's true that's true i'm glad also that you mentioned the second of the love scenes or the lust scenes however we want to put it i i really like the way alex malone who plays the potentially vampire woman here pulls those off it's a very specific kind of kiss that she gives him it's Almost like a, if you break up with me, this is what you're going to be missing kind of kiss because she's mostly marking her territory with him. He's gotten to the point he's so servile that, you know, he brings her food or blood or however you you want to look at it. And then she's taking possession of him physically. The kiss is so rough and raw. It reminds me of a couple of exes who have given kisses like that just as a reminder of this is what you're going to be missing. All this fun, all this excitement. Do you really want to give that up and uh you know for this guy answer should probably be a healthy yes but those are tough situations to be in so i I did really like the way that alex moved from 
this almost totally dependent creature to this lustful predator at the end. Fantastic transformation and very specific kind of kiss, too. She's very much in control by the end of it, especially when she's like back to the full strength. Also, kind of with the, the dirty roughness of the lighting, I was thinking let the right one in, but now my brain's jumping more to near dark, especially in the way that it, it keeps the woman in power in this scenario as opposed to near dark where may ultimately gets raped of her power and, and is left helpless as yet another human and the woman in this scenario she does not look like she is just going to be another human anytime soon which is also probably why that portion with the kiss was so compelling and erotically frightful it's good stuff on that note i think we're going to take a moment to uh, change some reels and then we'll be back with our feature film of the day Our feature film today is Babak and Bari's 2016 film, Under the Shadow. Uh, the film tells the tale of Sita and Dorsa, a mother and daughter combo, who are living in the post-revolutionary Tehran in the 1980s. And unfortunately, they find themselves in a home that might be haunted by an evil spirit. Now, Andrew, before the air raid sirens go off again, tell listeners why you decided to select this film this week. The reason that I picked Under the Shadow, as cautious listeners may know, I have a affection towards Iranian and Middle Eastern film as of late. I've plugged the Hamid Nafasi book about uh, exilic and diasporic cinema quite a few times. Under the Shadow came recommended to me by our upstream color guest, Kyle Miner, um, because we were talking about The Babadook, and he had asked me, oh, have you seen Under the Shadow? And I told him, well, no. And he said, well, it's not exactly like The Babadook, but you should give it a watch. And he was absolutely correct on both fronts. It is not that much like The Babadook. Maybe if you just look at it on a very broad spectrum of it being a mother trying to protect her child. But the specifics couldn't be any more different. This is a harrowing look at the way women were completely oppressed following the Cultural Revolution, which for a little bit, seemed like it was going to be an optimistic change for all, throwing off one radical regime that had total control over their lives and didn't take long for another one to come in. So there's a lot of finding like little pleasures in Under the Shadow. I absolutely loved how our main character, Ashida, played by Narjez Rashidi, she has this Jane Fonda tape, and it literally just says Jane Fonda tape, 1979, that she uses to work out to. It's just one of those little notes that Iran isn't this all-encompassing evil place like most Americans want us to believe. It's one of these locations where there are tiny pockets of U.S. culture that are there. While I'm certainly no fan of capitalism, you know, that it's, it's one of the ways that capital still makes itself present in their lives. And just a steady escalation of cultural and societal pressures on her, giving like this physical manifestation, almost like a haunted hijab coming after her, is like this perfect encapsulation of both this second life that the revolution took after the ugliness started to come in, and then also her specific issues being a woman in Tehran trying to be a doctor, trying to be a mother, trying to be a wife, 
and feeling so constrained by all of these roles at once. So thematically, this is extremely rich. And then there are so many tense and sometimes fun little details in between that kept me engaged until that final clash. This film does a really good job of slowly building the tension. And I love that in their society, there's constantly bombs going off and they're either running straight down to the basement or cellar and waiting it out or judging how bad it is. And there's one of the neighbors literally gets a bomb coming straight through their roof. And you can see in Sita's, there's a crack in her ceiling. Depending on what part of the film you're in, that crack could either be massive or it could be going smaller. And it's, it kind of seems to go with her, I would say, mental state at the time, especially when she's trying to figure out what the heck is going on, especially with this possible spirit. And I think this film does a really good job, as you said, talking about the oppression in that society. One of the oddly humorous moments comes when she's taken Dorsa and starts running. And I guess they come across some, I want to say they're at their army or police. And one of the guys says, what are we in Europe now? And that's because she doesn't have her hijab with her. It's an amusing moment until you think of like the society that she's in and everything that she's been through. And a lot of the pressure and tension originates from the fact that she was politically active at a time when everyone was. And she's getting punished for that. When her husband goes off to be a medical doctor in the, in the front lines, he's saying, well, you know, I have to go because my career is in jeopardy. And she has this great line where she says, if you lose the right to practice, it's a catastrophe. But if I lose the right, it's a protest. Those constant reminders of... She's constantly being put in her place by the powers that be in that society when all she wants to do is live her life the best way she sees fit. And I think that works perfectly, especially in the horror genre. You don't necessarily have the killer, if you're in a slasher film, like confining you to a house or what have you, but it's society is confining you to a, a bigger house that she can't escape from. Some of the things that you mentioned are why I think I do keep going back to Hamid Nafisi's book and, and why I want to focus on Iranian cinema more. Because in the Middle East, the United States is inadvertently, not inadvertently, that's completely wrong, is directly responsible for raising kids who are forming their own mythology around constantly dropped bombs that appear from nowhere because of our drone program. I guess for the listener, I am a hardcore leftist where that's concerned. U.S. imperialism needs to be stopped. And there are a lot of unsettling moments where we see just how used these people are to the constant fighting and the constant war, to the point that we could see this just being made into another one of their stories. I think the most direct example is also the most dryly funny, and that's at the very beginning when she there is having kind of an entrance oral exam, trying to get back in enrolled in university, and a bomb goes off in the distance. Not very far. Like, if I saw that, I would be running away or at least trying to get to some altitude where I did not have to see that in my eyeline. The difference in reaction between the two is really interesting because she did, she does pay it a little bit of mind, but she doesn't get freaked out by it. She just glances over at it and then looks back at the interviewer. Whereas the interviewer keeps his gaze directly on Sheeta pretty much the entire time. It speaks to the priorities of the men in this movie 
that the destruction and the war that is going on, it's second to making sure that a woman is always kept in her place. And despite Shibes, you know, previous political history and her genuine desire to be someone who can help save people's lives, this bomb isn't enough for this man to exert what control he has over this woman's life. And as you mentioned, also with the guards or the army patrolmen, it's less about keeping people safe. And it's more about what power and control they can exert at that moment. The guard portion, I could see how that would be funny. It was a little chilling for me just because once she went out uncovered, I, I knew something bad was going to happen. And she was able to escape punishment by luck and knowing the right people more than anything else. There is an almost strange Lovian humor to the very beginning with that professor whose priorities are screw over this woman first. Worry about the bomb second. See, the thing about it, even as you were speaking, it tr also reminded me that it translates to, I think it was the owner of the apartment complex that was yelling at her husband that how she doesn't close the garage door when coming in. And the husband was like, well, how do you know it's her? And he's like, well, first of all, she's the only woman that drives and all the men follow the rules. So obviously it must be her. And it's just like, can't get away from this whatsoever. Even the Jane Fonda tapes that she works out to, when you have the repair guy come, she has to remind her daughter not to mention that she has this tape because they will take the whole VCR and everything away. Really for a Jane Fonda workout tape, but it's completely different society. And I think it also helps with the, the mythology of the spirit, the one that I guess is coming in with the wind blows and the fact that at one point, although we never see it take that form, I don't believe, but the daughter talks about how she sees an old woman and the old woman's like, you know, I can take better care of you because your mother's not doing a good job. Because there's a few times where Sita, out of fear or out of responsibility, has to leave her daughter Dorsa alone in the house. And every time she does that, something happens in terms of either her being locked out or it puts more pressure on her to be a bad mother because, you know, you've left your daughter in this situation. So I found it interesting that the spirit manifests as this older woman who I believe would probably be more attuned to obeying the established rules that these men have set that would be deemed a, a quote-unquote more fit parent or parental figure for the daughter. For the specific cultural context, I could see that, and, and that plays into Shida's fears of becoming assimilated completely into the system that wants to make sure that every choice is made for her and not in the reverse. And you touch on also briefly one of my favorite aspects of Under the Shadow, and that is the relationship between Shida and Dorsa. I mean, obviously, we've got this maternal protective aspect, but what's really rough and gives this an edge that most of these kind of like mother-child or father-child relationships in horror movies have is how effectively Dorsa has internalized the passive-aggressive war between Shida and Iraj, who's uh, Shida's husband, played by Bobby Nadieri, because they have the, like this masterclass of a domestic dispute. When Shida finds out more information that Dorsa kept from her in regards to her education and what she wants to do with her life and it begins this sparring match that lasts about three to four minutes where each one of them just keeps answering one another's question with another question that digs the nail of their point in just a bit deeper and it isn't until Shida accuses Iraj, again, in the form of a question, are you saying I'm a bad mother because I want to have an education and be a doctor? That is the moment that he decides to shut the door and 
basically say, yes, you are not doing what I want you to do. I'm not going to play this passive-aggressive game anymore, and you need to do what I'm telling you to do. And his presence after he leaves is, again, it's one of constant passive aggression. Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you there? There is no consideration for Sheeta's well-being at all. And it gets to a point where it's a tragic mistake that Sheeta is taking it out on Dorsa. It's an understandable one, though. It's like it's one of those moments where I, I feel empathy for what is kind of a monstrous act. And all points to Sheeta because she does not take her mother's slap lying down. I realize that for some parents, that is probably a nightmare scenario when your punishment goes completely awry. But it comes at the cost of Sheeta sometimes belittling her own daughter in the same way Iraj does. So there's this intergenerational thing that's going on that, again, speaks back to the Cultural Revolution and how one generation in Iran has been so different from the next in terms of what they want, uh, the international relationships that they want to form, and so on. The passive-aggressive passing of the torch from generation to generation reaches its peak when Dorsa basically manipulates her mother into doing everything that she can to find the doll by saying things like, well, if you really loved me, you would find my doll. My brain, just in terms of like nuanced writing, exploded at that part. It's a child who is picking up the lessons of their parents, and it's just such great writing that the child, yes, is able to pick up on this, but the child is still putting it in a child's terms. It doesn't completely understand what it's saying, but at the same time, it's picked up enough cues from mom and dad to realize that these are the kind of words that hurt. There's definitely an intergenerational trauma thing going on, but just on a pure writing standpoint, I would, like my brain just went kaboom. Well, one thing I also liked about, I guess, the role of, of Dorsa in this film is a lot of times when you have a horror film and there's a prominent child featured, it's usually there's something really off about the child. The child has crazy eyes, or you get reports that the child's being problematic at school and being possessed, or maybe it sees a ghost. I like that, for the most part, for me at least, Dorsa felt like a real child who would react to her parents' situation in a realistic way. And even when she's interacting with other children, and especially the one child who I believe was a mute, but she was saying was telling him information, She's still conveying it in a sensible way. I thought that really helped to build up the sense of paranoia that we get from from Sita, because a lot of times you're wondering, well, the child seems to be saying that she's seeing something, and maybe it's just the mother that's projecting all of this. Maybe there's something else going on. And I like the fact that even up to the end, even when she's going after the doll for the fourth or fifth time, it's still interesting because usually something like that would get annoying. There's terror going on and, oh, a bomb drops, but the child's going looking for the doll. That would get annoying after a while. But it's but because she's so humanistic and I guess the way that Anvari films that character, it just works. And I also like that through Dorsa, he's allowed to use a lot of door imagery. You had talked about the door slamming and that being the ultimate symbol to put in your place. And that happens a lot in the film. Like There's one great shot where Dorsa runs into the apartment looking for her doll, and 
the way where the camera is set up, like you kind of get a wide view of the house and like the various hallway and the various doors and stuff. But throughout the film, there's a lot of times where doors will be open for a moment and then have to shut. Could be because the flying shadow is coming in or what have you. But the imagery of the closing of the door, and especially when you think of like the mother and daughter relationship and Sita's always trying to keep that door open between them, but it constantly is getting shut for various reasons. I thought it works partly because Dorsa is such a believable character. Well, and now that you brought up the recurring door imagery, too, I, I like when that gets turned on its head in a little more metaphorical way, because there's obviously the passive-aggressive scene between Shida and Iraj, where they're goading each other with questions. But the most tense moment is where Iraj is essentially a door that if Shida wanted to exit, she would have to go through him in order to leave. And that's very early when she is exercising to the Jane Fonda tape. And Iraj just stands there in the archway, almost goading very quietly, like he's aware of the presence and the pressure that his body is exuding on Shida. Sheeta just starts working out more and more furiously, and not a single word is said, but we get everything that is bad about their relationship in that one moment that was, you know, vocalized a bit more, and it's a great scene. I wouldn't take away their verbal sparring for anything, but if I just saw this scene of Sheeta exercising while Iraj just stares at her, coldly goading her on to do something that would have been more than enough to explain their relationship from start to finish and then in in terms of the other door imagery aspects you mentioned earlier about the crack in the drywall ceiling i love that as sort of like a portal opening or a portal closing you know a bit different from doors but hey it's it's a sign of other things to come and there is one super chilling effect when Shida is running after the gene, and it was almost like something out of a one of the good Nightmare on Elm Street movies, where the drywall of the ceiling is open and there's just nothing but black underneath. It's like a popped zit that just collapses back in on itself. So like if you popped a zit and filmed it in reverse and then played that only, in this case, it's existential nightmare. There were some super effective chilling moments like that. But again, like this gateway or this doorway to something that she barely understands and is part of this religious world that she really has no interest in. So when she's trying to comprehend something and see something that makes sense, she can't get a glimpse of it. It just closes itself off to her. This film, especially from a technical standpoint, does a great job of building a tense atmosphere. Because a lot of it, if you think about it, is really the dramatic interplay between Sita and her husband and Sita and Dorsa. And I'm trying to say, there's not too many jump scares for jump scares' sake. Like, I think everything has its purpose. But the way that he uses even the technology, if you will, to create that sustained tension. There's even simple shots like there's, I guess, that scene where she was, if I remember correctly, she was sleeping and had a bad dream and she kind of pops up and the camera oh, follows her. Yes, that was and so then good. when she does it again, this time the camera doesn't follow her. If the camera's not moving, it's like the camera's afraid to go to it. Something's not quite right. Very simple moment, but such a, a, an effective shot. 
Well, it's a great rule of three moment because she emerges kind of from her dream or from her nightmare and the camera makes sure that she's staying absolutely parallel and level while the world shifts around her. On a very literal sense, it's her world going topsy-turvy. But then when it doesn't do that, like you said, is that her just losing a bit of herself and accepting that the world is crazy? Or is it really getting to her? It's one of those ambiguous shot moments that I love, and it's just so stylized and wonderful and disorienting. When you were talking about the jump scares or lack thereof, the only jump scare that actually happens in this is the culmination of this nightmare figure that she can barely see. The introduction of what we presume is the gene sleeping next to her as her husband. And I love how it kept the face just slightly off camera and concealed in darkness so that we couldn't see what exactly it is that she was talking to because we know who she's talking to but if we can't see it then it remains something that's just stuck in our brains there is a danger in revealing the monster or showing what it looks like and losing some of that power but i gotta say if you're gonna reveal your monster and it's going to be a gigantic set of gnashing teeth where you think your child should be, that is a good way to show everything and nothing at all. Yep, very effective. There was a similar sequence that happened in last season of Twin Peaks involving Laura Palmer's mother, and I can't help but wonder if Lynch saw this moment and decided that he was going to try and use it. I think it's more effective here. It's still great in the the Twin Peaks The Return, but here it goes against what we've known so far, that Dorsa is someone that Cheetah can save if she just figures out the right combination of items or right things to do, but the gene has infected her, and her in this case could either be Sheeta or it could be Dorsa, because of her sickness, that it manifests itself as like this hungry but still human beast, and even though we can tell there are gigantic teeth, there's still more darkness behind that. I was not expecting that. But considering, like, this control and this idea of, like, consuming her free will, it's another one of those moments that just fit in perfectly. And I think it plays nicely to the ending. There's the, the shots of the, the items, the two items that are, are left behind. And I guess you could argue that the thing that both the mother and daughter cling to the most throughout the entire film. And, and those are the, I guess, vessels, if you will, for this spirit to grab hold of and gets work its way into the house and i thought it was a, an effective shot or shots towards at the very end just focusing on those two items and having that kind of lingering sense like this aside no matter what you cling to the stuff that you love to the most that there's going to be some way to to be ruined and that's actually a really good way to bring up something i'm kind of curious on your thoughts of and that's the way that the hijab is basically repurposed as a demonic force if she doesn't have it she gets in trouble and then she is literally haunted by it and there's a lot of conversation around the hijab worldwide because in france i don't know if they were able to repeal this or not but they had passed a law 
that, you know, the hijab was banned. You weren't allowed to wear the hijab in France, which I'm not a particularly religious guy, but that is secularism gone way wrong. And I also realized that there is a complex web of gender politics and religion and power that goes into the hijab just as a symbol. But there are also plenty of women who see that as a great testament to their faith. Like they willingly clothe themselves this way because they like it. And it also serves as a way of very quietly and proudly exclaiming their faith in God, or Allah in this case. And we wouldn't really see it any differently than a yarmulke if it wasn't for all the stupid United States bigotry against Muslim religions and so on. But the use of the hijab here, it almost feels like it is some haunting reminder that this is something that in present day Tehran, she's not going to be able to escape from. Even though women around her who seem to be more comfortable with what's going on are able to wear it with some sense of pride. Like I loved the neighbor who was mystically attuned or at least believed the stories of the gene. So since the hijab is such a loaded conversation topic in general, but it's also an important religious symbol, how you felt it being used here? I took it more as a commentary on the men in that society. And if you want to expand it, like men in our North American society, more than it as a repressive tool. And what I mean by that is I, I got the sense that she would have been fine wearing it normally or choosing whether or not she wanted to wear it if she didn't have to face all the adversity. All the men in this film treat her with a certain lack of respect. They underestimate her intelligence, her ability, simply because she's a woman. And again, because the hijab is, I guess, the ultimate sign of femininity in this particular environment. They've tainted it so much to the point that it has manifested in this kind of resentment and, and evil. Because it's such a broad topic and I would never be one to tell people how to practice their faith, I don't yeah. look at it as the hijab in, in this film being oppressive or a sign of a faith that is bad. I think it's just more the, I don't know, like if I'm trying to think of a, of a good analogy, but if you, like if you take a cloth or a flag or something and then you have a whole bunch of people step on it and them stepping on it is basically keeping what it down it gets dirty it gets grimy having the flying chatter and just having the symbol of the hijab as almost nightmarish in this film works because the men in that environment and that she's interacting with are making it nightmarish by all accounts even when the bomb comes into the neighbor upstairs they come running asking for her help because they're like you know you're a doctor she's like well actually no they won't allow me like well we were told you're a doctor so you're going to come and help you know at that point it doesn't matter because they see her as someone who has a certain level of ability whereas her husband and everyone else is like no you're just a woman and you shouldn't be driving you shouldn't protest you shouldn't do this this and that so i i, I looked at more as a reflection of those around her and not necessarily the women that wore it it's a very loaded topic and i think the discussion has especially in the last i would say 10 well she may be even more since like 9 11 i think we as a society in north america have kind of taken that symbol and put our own narrative to it and refuse to listen to others especially the women who who wear it the ones who do and the ones who don't and the various reasons we similar to her husband don't really hear the words that they're saying we just kind of come in with our own views and that's why i think specifically in this film how 
its approach is it's not really a commentary on the women themselves, but more how the men are treating the women. Well, it also fits really well, and, and I'm starting to get damn impressed with Anvari's handling of the hijab when it's cloaked you know, as this demonic figure, because it goes back to there not being a face behind it. Like It doesn't really matter what woman or what thing is behind the hijab so long as it is concealed by the hijab, and you know, this woman would be tormented by it because of all the men in her life constantly trying to control every bit of her. She's just another thing to throw a hijab over, and she's not something that it's free to do what she wants to. One moment that you brought up there contained the most striking image, and also the most haunting in terms of our own history of imperialism and our ongoing bomb campaigns and drone strikes and so forth. But when the missile hits and it doesn't explode, and it's just sitting there... There is a fantastic Andre Tarkovsky short that he did for college, no less, called There Will Be No Leave Today about Soviet soldiers having to defuse a gigantic bomb that's found beneath a village. Going back to how these people have gotten so accustomed to these relics of war that they just go about their lives, there is something simultaneously so bleak and resilient in that image of Sheeta desperately trying to save this man's life. And when her body slumps, when she realizes that she can't, I didn't even realize the bomb was there in the background until her frantic compressions stopped. And that is something that could have gone off at any minute. But these people have to stay focused on the lives in front of them. They can't focus on the unexploded bomb behind them. It really got to me. Just that one shot. We've talked a lot about so many other things that are affected and the complexities here. But when you brought up that moment, I had to talk about that shot because that was that was a wowzers for me. And I think it also speaks to um, Rashidi's performance in that moment and just throughout oh, the film yeah. in, in general because she does a really good job of having to carry the load of emotions and go from the resentful, angry wife and former student to being the caring mother, but also the frustrated mother and trying to be the hero, even though she doesn't want to be. And then realize that she can't like there's just a, a wide range, but she she does a, a wonderful job. And after watching this film, I, I had to just hop on IMDb and it's like, what else has she done? Because I, I want to see her in more things because I think she's got star potential. When you were talking earlier about Dorsa and Avin Manshadi's performance, she never comes off as acting at all. Like, it, it reminds me of that story of uh, Tarsim Singh's The Fall and how the, the child actress in that didn't realize she was in a movie. She thought that she was just having a conversation conversation with a quadriplegic man and i realize that there are some ethical issues that we could get into there but i also think that they were able to capture something so heartfelt and perfect with the fall and by giving manshadi this room like it does not appear as though she was overly coached in a lot of these scenes it would not surprise me if in that moment when Shiva slaps Dorsa for almost no reason, if that was just Manshadi's actual reaction, there was some palpable danger there. 
almost found myself kind of rooting for the kid. Sure, you know, we got to keep parental structures intact. I, I would assume that you as a parent, obviously, would, would want to keep some of those parental structures intact. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but at that moment, I was like, no, she was, she was a crappy mom and her daughter fought back. That's amazing. But it comes off so brutal that the performance, it does not feel coached. I mean, it probably was to some extent. I think that there's significantly more hurdles involving multiple scenes that take place in and around this building as opposed to just a girl being wheeled in for conversations with one man. But here, like... It's just a stunning bit of naturalistic performing. No slight to Rashidi's work. She is phenomenal here. But the two of them are just magic. It's a hell of a thing to watch and feel your way through. Even as a parent, I could see both the frustration that Sita had. Like, I, I, I understood where she was coming from. But then there was a lot of times where I was like, you're being so wrapped up in your own anger. You're kind of hurting your parenting skills with Dorsa. So, you know, and there are certain scenes where I was like, you could have handled that better. But right. they're magic together. I think this film, for all its nice technical touches, it really relies on these two actresses carrying the load. And I oh, think they totally. do a phenomenal job. I'm going to have to check out both the director's other feature, which to date is one other short film, two and two. And while Under the Shadow, it's hard to tell exactly what it made overseas versus what it made here. Is it something that's got a cult following? But it is one of these movies that it may be one of my favorites in the long term because, like, as we've been talking, there's just been so much to dig into. And the scares when they're there, they're so effective. And the social commentary is so effective in the performance performances are so effective i didn't feel tired by the end of it i just felt exhilarated like i was so freaking thrilled to see a story this specific hit these painful notes again and again so i really look forward to seeing anything else from (laughs) anyone involved in this movie if you haven't seen this film it's on netflix right now so go on and show it some support because these are the type of films that really need to find a, a bigger audience even if it's a cult following i think it's it really deserves to be seen absolutely so i i think i'm tapped out dude i'm uh ready to fall under the shadow of sleep ha 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 ha, ha. well you know what <laughs> that's fine before you do that Tell folks where they can find you. Well, you can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor the Gmail account, which is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoy the show, please consider contributing to my Patreon. You will already have some goodies unlocked there, more podcasts, and soon-to-come exclusive reviews amongst other things. So that's how you can reach me and uh, help support the nutrition (laughs) that I need to keep going. How about you, Courtney? They can reach me via our Twitter account at Changing Reels AC or my own Twitter account at Small Mind. So for Andrew and myself, thank you very much for listening. And remember, you can change the conversation about diversity in cinema one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.